Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, Professor of Strategy at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School. And with me is my colleague, Dr. John Michaelshek, Professor of Theory and History. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Craig Smith, who's also a member of faculty and teaches theory and history here at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School. John, over to you for the first question. Our very special guest. Yes, I came from like two doors down. Two doors down. Three doors down. That's a different, that's a band. That's different. A whole, that's a whole of the show. So we have Dr. Craig Bruce Smith. Not Bruce Craig Smith. Uh, but we have brought Craig on to talk about his specialty, the American Revolution, George Washington. Uh, and so, Craig, we have the first question for you. Sure. Is why is the American Revolution still relevant? to warfighters, planners, Americans in general? No, that's, that's a great question. It's one that comes up frequently, especially uh, if you're thinking about warfighting in in modern world. There's no planes, there's no subs, there's no nukes, there's no cyber. Um, so is it, is it still relevant? I would say yes, absolutely it's relevant. And why? Because it's the foundation for everything that the military and the nation does. To, to, re, to dismiss the American Revolution or remove it or downplay it fundamentally undermines what we think of as the American way of war, civil relations, officership. Um, the, element, the basic elements of operational art are all on display in the American Revolution uh, at a time well before Napoleon. And th- what I like to say is, uh, you know, there's a lot of, in PMA and the military, lots put on, what did the Prussians do? Or what did Napoleon do? But fundamentally, we're the American army. We're not the French army. We're not the Prussian army. Um, so what's important is, well, first of all, what are the ideals? How does that impact officer oaths? Um, and then how can we actually take certain elements of civil mill relations? That's, a, that's the best, that's the best, I think that's the most basic one. Um, what made the American military different, what still makes it different, was civilian supremacy. And that's something established by Washington when he takes command in 1775 of the Continental Army. And it's something he maintains throughout the war, even when there are those conspiring to remove him potentially uh, as commander-in-chief. It's something he he retains when he uh, prevents possibly a mutiny or a coup against Congress from his officers when they haven't been paid in Newburgh in uh, New York in 1783. And it's on display when he surrenders his commission in Annapolis at December 23rd, 1783. Something that hadn't been done since the ancient world. Uh, Washington choosing to give up power, to not be a king, um, handing power back over to Congress. That's fundamentally the basis of civil mill relations. Uh, and it, it becomes a marvel throughout the world. Uh, so that's the one sort of basis. But if you're saying, well, um, what about operationally? Um, you know, op art gets, you know, the, the, the idea is, well, it's Napoleonic or it's Clausewitzian and Jominian. And I, I know you're going to have a heart attack when I say Clausewitz is not all things. No, he is everything. <laughs> uh, but the idea, if you're looking at elements of op, of op art, of modern warfighting, if you want to talk about surprise, if you want to talk about operational reach, if you want to talk about basing, if you want to talk about uh, command and control, all of these elements you can find in campaigns of the American Revolution, whether it's Washington crossing the Delaware in 1776, or it's Nathaniel Green uh, orchestrating the Southern campaigns in, in the Carolinas. You could, you could argue that 
uh, Nathaniel Green's um, strategy of uh, paraphrasing a bit: get we uh, get beat, get beat, go to sleep, wake up, fight again tomorrow, get beat again. But he's thinking of the wider campaign and the wider end goal of defeating the British, rather than just fixating on the individual battle. I think all of these lessons are, are still relevant. But that's a, a long-winded way of saying yes. Very long-winded uh, introduction by Dr. Smith, I think. But uh, as a student also of the Revolutionary War, Craig, uh, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit um, about those times because Americans in general, I think, know so little about the Revolution. Um, you know, Washington, for example, I think most Americans are surprised to find out he was a British officer uh, or that actually all of the Americans before 1775 were citizens of the British Empire. Could you just talk about yeah, that a little so, bit? Yeah, so this is the thing. Washington wasn't a British officer. If he had been, would we have in America today? So he was in the Virginia militia. He had Virginia militia commission, and he had served without rank with the British Army. And this was part of the thing the reasons that drove him to become a revolutionary. Uh, during the French and Indian War, or, or the Seven Years' War, uh, Washington was given a uh, Virginia commission. He basically inherited it from his brother when he died. Uh, he had no military background except, aside from, well, his brother had done the job, so why not him? Uh, and it was a lot of tension, and uh, particularly because colonials were viewed as lesser than. So a colonial at a colonel rank, so he starts at a major, makes it a lieutenant colonel, makes it to finally to colonel. Uh, British officers of lower rank who held a king's commission, technically directly from the king, viewed themselves as superior to any colonial regardless of the rank. So Washington is constantly battling with British captains who believe that they hold command over him even though he's a colonel because of this position of uh, the king's commission. And this actually leads to great catastrophe in that Washington early on in the war is going to uh, remove his his men away from British officers so that he can maintain command. Ultimately, it's going to lead to a defeat at Fort Necessity, where he's going to have to actually sign a document um, poorly translated by his Dutch interpreter, uh, which is written in French, that he's basically an assassin of a, a French diplomat. And Washington's going to pr profess for the rest of his life, well, he didn't know it said that, and this couldn't have been a, Fren a French diplomat. It didn't look like one. Um, but there is this absolutely this tension starting from, from as early as the 1750s, where Americans, though they are part of the British Empire, that they view themselves as loyal subject, are treated as something different. And that's what's going to start a lot of the rumblings of the revolution. Uh, but one interesting uh, tidbit, Washington actually wanted to be a British naval officer when he was uh, about 14, and his mother said no, and that was the end of it. But had we had a British Admiral George Washington, who knows what the country looks like today. So I have a question then. <clears throat> so are you, this could be in your next book, Greg. Sure. Washington, based on what you just said, Washington became a revolutionary because of rank dispute. That's very George Patton that it, to me. That is part of it. Uh, I'm not saying it's solely it, but I think Washington came to it from personal experience, that he felt it over rank dispute, and then he saw it how it was affecting uh, American militia units more broadly, and he started to come to this, this sort of collective realization. So what he starts initially is promoting based on merit in his own militia units. 
there's always exceptions. So uh, there are uh, family, friends, kids who want commissions, and Washington says, I cannot commission them because that would be dishonorable. But you, Lieutenant Governor, can commission them for me. Uh, I don't want to do it, but you could do it. But you're right. I think it is very personal for him at the start. And when we start to get taxation, whether it's a stamp tax or uh, various other duties, and um, Washington starts to take it personally because uh, Americans start to boycott British products. When they do that, the merchants in London of Washington is a, like a shopaholic. He wants all the latest fashions. They call in their debts. And Washington is like, how dare you dishonor me by assuming I would not pay you? Um, it was very common for an 18th century gentleman to run up a debt. It's just like today, the idea that if you have debts, it's a good thing. Maybe not if you have to pay them, but it shows someone trusts you. So like if you have a really, like you have a platinum card or a black card, it shows someone trusts you that you could eventually pay it. But to call this in was uh, a violation. And Washington starts to join this with sort of what other people are feeling. It's very personal for him. So if we can move away from Washington's uh, fashion choices and shopping habits, uh, he seems like uh, a person, though, who was um, exceptionally uh, open to learning during the war. Yes. Um, So in particular, when he's with Green in New York and they go toe-to-toe with the British and get crushed, um, and then Green takes those lessons, you know, down south. Can you talk a little bit about how he learned during the course of that long war? So Washington for is going to complain for his whole life about his defective education. He doesn't have any really formal schooling. His older brothers, uh, older half-brothers, go to school in England, but then his father dies. They can't afford it. So he probably has a local tutor. Maybe he goes to a local schoolhouse. Um, most of his education is going to come from reading books and What is he reading? He's reading things anywhere from novels to he's, uh, for the purpose of the war, he's reading a lot of military theory. You know, military theory does exist before Clausewitz, despite what what some people. So so he's reading about Frederick the Great. He's reading about Gustavus Adolphus. Uh, He's reading about Humphrey Bland, who is a British general who wrote a a book that's basically the most well-known in the Anglo-American world at at that time. Um, so he's learning very much on the job. He has military experience. He has some of the best military experience of the Americans, but he's figuring out as he, as he goes along. Um, but uh, to your point, he is very open-minded, and he's learning from his, his staff uh, as well. So if you think about the battle of, you know, in and around New York, uh, I don't want to say the battle of New York because that's the Avengers, um, but he gets beat horribly. It's a disaster. Now, why? Because Washington wants to fight this war like a European army, because he says it's going to bring prestige to him. It's for the honor of the nation. He doesn't want it dismissed. The problem is um, fighting the British in New York, in New York Harbor, basically small-scale island hopping, the Americans are not suited to this. And there's actually Washington at one point pitches, why don't we just burn New York? New York does ultimately burn, and there's a new book out that talks about, uh, by Ben Karp, is the idea of, well, did Washington start the fire, or is it just Billy Joel? We don't know. Um, So um, he gets beat bad, but he's able to retreat, to regroup, and to think about it. 
What he does very effectively is he listens to his staff. He has open uh, communication. So when he has his councils of war, he's going to ask open questions. What should we do? And he actually lets his staff, whether it's Alexander Hamilton or Nathaniel Green, voice their opinions, voice dissent. Um, and so oftentimes when they do um, uh, offer opinion, he'll say, write that up for me. Give me a couple of pages so I can reflect on it. Ultimately, the decision is his, but he's willing to, to hear the debate, listen to the debate. Uh, it helps him think, and then he can go back and make his decision. Whereas if we compare that to someone like Lord Cornwallis, uh, he would refer to his, his staff by their Etonian nicknames, and he would basically just show up and say, this is what we're going to do. Everyone understands? Yes. Okay. Good. And um, we see long-term Washington's strategy is effective, an open system, where a more closed system like Cornwallis leads to him surrendering at Yorktown. Now to uh, defend the great saint, Carl von Clausewitz, who you have denigrated this entire episode. Um, we, we read in Jaws. We are in second week. We just had our Clausewitz class this morning. We did. In my group, we talked about this thing called the cup of oil, as we <laughs> called it last year. The idea of genius. Jomini uh, mentions the all-seeing eye. W- one of our... Themes as well in Jaws is strategic leadership. Yeah. So my question then, combining the great Clausewitz cup of oil, yes, genius, yes, what made Washington a genius in your eyes, a strategic leadership, and something that we should model okay, after? So, so here's the thing: is he a military genius like a Napoleon? I would say no, right. And so oftentimes this is where you know uh, the the armchair generals go, aha. Washington's not important. He's not like Napoleon. I, I completely concede that. If we're saying on the field, does he have, you know, can he assess the field in the same way that Napoleon can? Probably not. But what can he, what can he do that Napoleon can't? And I think that's what makes him the pinnacle of a strategic leader. Um, and I've had students write on this. I, I've actually had one student write a paper one time on that Washington is America's first strategic leader. And I think that's, that's accurate. The idea that he is a general and a statesman. He is a political general, and he understands that. He's trying to balance what Congress wants, um, even sometimes against his own, his own interests. So, again, in defending New York, let's say, Congress says, no, you have to defend New York because we've just issued this Declaration of Independence. We're saying Britain isn't defending us, and now we can't not defend our citizens in New York, even though Washington strategically and operationally understands this is not the best use of the Continental Army. He's able to keep his own personal opinions in check for the good of the nation. He's able to always put the political interests first, but he's also able to calm his, his officers and his men, again, whether it's putting down a potential mutiny, whether it's when they are, are themselves arguing over rank as European officers are coming in and being given generals' ranks because, well, they have an accent. Um, he's able to keep that in check, and he's also able to develop new styles of war. He's able to combine a hybrid warfare that's taking elements of the European style, fixed rank, and with elements of the sort of guerrilla style that we think of such from such documentaries as The Patriot, um, so he's able to combine these, but at the same time, he's always has the, what is the objective? To preserve American liberty, American freedom, 
ultimately American independence. And Washington views the war in as, if you want to use Clausewitzian term, the cog is the Continental Army. So long as the Continental Army remains in the field, the revolution continues. The British would have to subjugate an entire you know, nation. Um, so I think that's what he's able to do. Um, he's able to balance, if you're thinking Trinity, he's able to balance will, he's able to balance government, he's able to balance the military. Uh, sometimes does it, is there tension between the military and the civilians and the government? Absolutely. But he's able to hold it together. And then when he resigns, which I think is the most important act in American history, I think we should have another holiday for it right before Christmas. <laughs> he preserves that. So everything he fought for during the war is preserved and ultimately becomes the foundation for the military uh, as it develops later. And also, again, when he surrenders his, his power as president, it's the basis for our nation the way he understood strategic leadership. So let's talk uh, about some other great leaders, though, sure. during the, the Revolutionary uh, War period. Uh, you know, at sea, you have John Paul Jones, really the sure. father of the, the Navy. Uh, Green, certainly a great example of an of a operational commander in the South. Others? Uh, well, if, if you want to talk the best battlefield general for the Americans, um, that was Benedict Arnold, well, until he, he kind of <laughs> goes traitor. Um, but I, I think Washington and Nathaniel Green are, are the sort of the pinnacles, right? You've got others that have great success at varying moments. So if you think of someone like Horatio Gates, great hero of Saratoga, wins this great strategic victory that, that potentially brings the French into this, uh, this fight, which ultimately you know, the, the French Navy saves America. But he's not able to duplicate it. And he, he doesn't have the same ability to uh, actively handle the political uh, with his, his staff and, and his men. Again, he's politicking behind the scenes to replace Washington. He's interested in his own advancement. Um, so we see some failures in that regard. So it's the, the military officers like Washington, like, like Green, that are able to balance all of this, that do well, that are able to think uh, more strategically than s simply on the, the individual battle. So you can find individual you know, commanders that are great on at varying levels, right, at a tactical level or maybe on an operational level. But um, it's those that are, that are bridging that you know, divide between the strategic and the operational that I think are, are really deserve more attention, especially for, for a war college, especially as we often get, you know, American revolutions gets overlooked. It's too small scale. The numbers are too long. There's no tanks. Um, but the one thing you could say is every, like, you could find the father of everything in modern military, whether it's the father of engineering, you've got, you know, Kosciuszko, whether it's um, the it's the earliest elements of American alliances, whether it's dealing with the French, whether it's dealing with the Dutch, with the Spanish. So uh, in multi-domain, yes, there's only a few domains, but um, there's, there's sea, land, there's coordination. There's also the information domain. And you have to think of Washington as a spy master also and using deception. Um, so it's these, it's these officers that are able to, do, to be, be multi-hatted multi because they have to be. Um, I think that is, that is, that is the, um, the thing to observe here. So to talk about the most important aspect of the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, which is strategy, what could the Brits have done differently? 
Was it was there any hope for the Brits winning this war once the first shots were fired? Well, that's 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 difficult, and that's a lot of what if. And I know in strategy you like to play the what if game and just make things up. So let's let's play it. Um, recently, we had a, a student, Shane Rutherford, who was one of your first guests, and he wrote his his ISRP his thesis on that Britain had no strategy, and because of that, it basically cost them America before anything even happened. Um, I think there's, there, there could be a bit more nuance there, which is there are moments prior to the start of the war where things could have been worked out, whether it's uh, given uh, return to the status quo, given you know, the Americans some form of representation. Um, the failure of the British is largely that they don't, they are not able to think long-term. At least, I'm not saying all, but some are unable to think long-term about if we uh, crack down on this, what, how are the Americans going to respond? And they, ha they have to think about their own British character. How have the, the British responded with the potential uh, view of, of governmental overreach? There's been revolutions in, in, in recent memory, um, and that's sort of ignored. Uh, I think that is, is, is a failing. Um, could the British have, have won, defeated the Continental Army militarily? Absolutely, they could have. Um, there are many times where Washington could have been defeated. I mean, if you're thinking about uh, New York, uh, after New York, and, and uh, he's being chased around New Jersey, they refer to Washington as the fox to be bagged. Uh, think of it you know, as, as sport hunting. Washington doesn't get across that river, or he doesn't get across uh, from Long Island to Manhattan. War could be over. But the flip side, and if you're thinking about this with, you know, coming out of 20 years of counterinsurgency, the British have to do one thing that the Americans don't have to do. The Americans just have to not lose. The British have to defeat an idea, an idea that's taken hold in the people. And that's very difficult to do. So how would they, how could they defeat an idea? Um, be very difficult. You're talking a full-scale occupation of America, and then does that just not potentially harden the American resolve? We don't know. Um, so there's, there's a book, if you're interested, called The Men Who Lost America, all about the strategic vision or lack thereof. Uh, well, it sounds a lot like strategic competition today. I mean, the Brits had other things going on at that time uh, with France in, in particular. Um, so would you say the war was a bit of a Distraction wasn't their main effort. It's it's absolutely becomes a world war, and the French here the French strategy is revenge. That is their strategy, and they they are getting the French are getting involved just to hurt Britain. That's it. Um, so the British uh, again it starts out as a colonial war becomes a becomes a world war. But Britain cannot commit purely to North American continent. They have to worry about the sugar islands in the Caribbean, which are, they would rather lose all of Canada than lose one sugar island. They have to be concerned about their possessions in India. They have to be concerned about fighting in Europe. They have to be concerned about potentially an invasion of, of, of Britain, theoretically. Right? We know that that doesn't work out well. Um, but yeah, there's fighting on multiple continents, so the British cannot completely commit. And then there's the, the aspect of logistics. You, you have to ship your army 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. Di, you know, disrupted communication. You know, it's, it takes from anywhere from four to six weeks to, to, have, to have words. So you have commanders, British commanders, that are going off of guidance that could be a month and a half old. 
All right, so we know, <clears throat> Craig, we could talk, you could talk countless more hours about George Washington, what he could squat, what he could do. Uh, but before we depart, is there anything you're working on currently? Yes, I'm, I'm working on, on two projects, which is why you have to take on all the admin duties. Um, for, for the Army, for the uh, upcoming 250th anniversaries, uh, I'm working on a book called Securing Victory, which is a short little book on the year 1783 and how that year helps what through the Treaty of Paris, through Washington's suppression of any mutiny at Newburgh, through the surrendering of commissions, um, really forms the basis of civil relations uh, that, that exists today. And you can see that in officers' oaths. Um, you can see it in you know, reaffirmation of certain principles post you know, January 6th. And book, another book I'm doing um, is called The Greatest Man in the World, Global History of Georgia. It's about George Patton? No, it is not. It is not. No one, no one likes him. Uh, so Greatest Man in the World, Global History of George Washington. So it's how Washington is looked at as a global figure. And it's basically contending that Washington becomes a symbol of America abroad, but also he is used by a variety of countries on every continent to represent certain ideals or certain principles um, from the military to the um, political to, to sort of a model for character. Oh, good. And we have a, a tradition, a long tradition on the jawbone. Could you give us a brief definition okay. of war? A brief definition of war. War is a violent conflict between multiple parties during a recognized, with some form of recognition. So war must be violent. It must involve multiple parties. Could be state, could be non-state actors. Again, it's going to depend. But it has to have some form of recognition by those involved in it. I wouldn't say it's the worst definition ever. <laughs> but <laughs> I think he would get a barely passing grade yeah, during a, the oral comp. Uh, uh, you want you want B minus. You want you want brief. You want here. Here's what it could be. We want crisp and accurate. In the words of a retiring colonel, worst definition ever. But next time. But, Craig, thanks for coming out. No, thanks for having me. And uh, if you want, you can follow Craig on the Twitter or the X, whatever it's called. He's a very active social media user. Well, Was verified. Yes, no I'm X-verified. He's, he's, he's been... But we, we, have to, we have to commend one of the hosts, John Michaelshek, today, who was awarded a very prestigious and elite medal for his single-handedly transitioning and pivoting Jaws to the Pacific for our, our recent trip to... Saipan to study Operation Forager. Yes, I'd like to thank me. <laughs> thank me, Dr. Manza. Congratulations, Dr. Michael. Schmitt, thank you. For a job marginally well done. Yes. And uh, thank you, Craig, for the write-up, because without Craig, I wouldn't have received this award. I tried so to stop thank it. you. <sighs> All right, but, but Craig, thanks very no, much. Thanks for having me. All right. Till next time. Till next time. <laughs>